And I get to continue your series for you. You're in this series called Things God Uses to Grow Your Faith. And I'm going to be talking specifically about providential relationships. Now, if you're anything like me, the first thing that you ask when I say that is, what does providential mean? I appreciate you asking that. You see, providential is this seemingly accidental, unplanned moments that, that happen in our lives. It's that time when you're like, I, I happen to be at the perfect spot at just the right time, and that, that person was there and said the right words, and I'm like, did God do that? Because it was so perfect, and the answer is, he probably did. And that's what I want to talk about and show how Scripture shows us this over and over and over again. These, these weird moments where God just does something, but it was like the right place, right time, and it's just mind-boggling how it works sometimes. Before I jump into that, though, I need you to do some crowd participation. And I know what you're thinking, because I think the same thing when I'm out there. Please don't make me move. I don't want to, I just, you know, just want to sit and enjoy the moment. I'm sorry, I am going to, I'm going to push you here. What I need you to do is find a stranger nearby and ask them this question. Who is someone in your past that helped you grow closer to God? Uh, it, this will help. I know it's kind of, kind of annoying sometimes to find a stranger. It can't be someone family member or anything like that. I want you to push a little bit. It'll help the sermon stick. So who is someone in your past that helped you grow closer to God? You only have one minute, so meet someone really quick and say, this was the person. Okay. You guys are way better at this than the first service, by the way. Like, really, <laughs> way better. First service, I could barely hear them talking. So, kudos. Stay with that person. Second question, it's in your notes as well. Who do you have a relationship with right now, right now in your life, that helps you go closer to God? So we went from the past I want to know who it is right now that's helping you grow. Tell that to your new best friend. Thank you for doing that. You uh, can go back to your familiar spot, your usual seat. <laughs> so as I was thinking about providential relationships, I started to kind of reflect in my own life, and I realized as I went back in time just how many times there was just the right person at the right moment to really affect my faith. When I was in high school, I met this guy by the name of Rob Sinner. 
he was a Christian, but his last name was Sinner. So it was, there you go. And I'm, I'm, I was just blown away by this guy. He was amazing because he would just start quoting scripture, but like yell it from the quad in the middle of school. And for some reason, he wasn't weird. Like everyone liked him and he was best friends with everybody. And I, I saw this and my mind was blown because I'm like, okay, there's a way to be bold in your faith and not be a weirdo. Like people actually will connect with it if you can do it in the right way. And it sort of started to affect the way I started going, all right, I'm going to be bold. I, I just really watched him and it helped me along. Later on, I met a guy. His name was Randy Muherter, another odd name. But he, uh, I'm at this See with the Pole event, and we're, we're just there. It's early, and this guy gets in my face and goes, you need to be a leader. You need to start leading for God. And I'm like, who is this? This is a random stranger. And then he walks away, and for some reason, I go, okay. I'll do that. I'll start to lead for God. And it was just like this moment of, of click in my head. Then as time went on, I met somebody else. Uh, it was a pastor by the name of Scott Gossenberger. Apparently all my friends have weird names. But I'm in the back row. I'm near the door. I'm, just, I'm at church one day, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. That should be enough for everybody. And he comes up after the service. Again, I don't know him that well, but he gets in my face and says, you know what? I think you're going to be in ministry. You should be in ministry. And I was in college at the time, and sort of my path was not heading towards ministry. I was doing several other things. And for some reason, when this person, this random out-of-the-blue moment happened, when he said you should be in ministry, I went, okay. And I went into ministry. Like, it shifted my entire life, 25 years of ministry, and here we are today because of this one seemingly accidental moment. How strange is that? That happens over and over and over again. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what we're going to talk about. And I want to show you how the Bible is saying the same thing. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Ruth. You have some notes. Pull those out, and there are some pins that you can pass out to everyone in your row. And we're going to move into Ruth the whole time, so if you get there on your phone or however you're doing it, that'll be the spot. As you're turning there, it's funny. When we are youth pastors, I was a youth pastor early on, we use these verses a lot. Whoever walks with the wise will be wise. This is a proverb, and the companion of fools suffers harm. And we say this to high school age students a lot, our 14 year olds a lot. And it's kind of funny because if you actually look at the old, the, the writers who was writing this and how they would write these particular proverbs, we think of them as commands and they were given out as some kind of like rule book and just things you should know. But the truth is the early writers of most of the proverbs were observers. And they're just these scribes writing things that they observe down. And so what basically you're seeing happen here is they're looking around going, you know, when someone hangs out with these wise people, they become more wise. And when these morons over here get together, they become fools. And it's weird because we're like, yeah, that all makes sense, right? It's this very obvious thing, and yet 
we push against it a lot. We sort of miss that a lot, that the wise hang out with each other to become wise, and the morons become even bigger morons as they hang out together. The other verse we used a lot was 1 Corinthians. And it was, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. We teach these, these truths to our 14-year-olds and forget that when we're 40 and 50, it still applies. That this matters where we're spending our time. So the story of Ruth comes along, and you sort of have to know the back story to this. And the back story is Israel is going through a famine. And no food. They're starving. And so they move. This is Naomi and Imelech. These two move to Moab with their two sons to get food. They're trying to survive. And so they're in Moab. They're there about 10 years, and the husband dies. And then the two sons die. And while they're in Moab, the two sons had gotten married, married to Moabite women, which if you know the Jewish culture at this time period, that was like a no, you don't do that. But boys will be boys, and they're in this foreign land, they see these women, they get married. So they get married, and they eventually die. Ten years has passed, and Naomi's like, my life is awful. She literally writes, my life is terrible. My husband's died. My, my two sons have died. Uh, I'm going to go back to Israel. I don't even care. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going back to my homeland, what I know. And so she goes to these two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and she says, you guys have been great. I love you, and I, I just want to encourage you to not come with me because no good Jewish boy is going to connect with you again, and, and you'll never be married again, and it's going to be hard. We're going to be poor. You should stay here and continue with your life. Orpa hears that, and she's like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, love you too. I agree. Ruth hears it and has a totally different response. We heard, see her response a little later, and she says, don't tell me to leave you. I have seen too much and I love you too much. And I, I want your God to be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm going to go where you go. I, I want to follow and be a part. I want to be buried where you're buried. So what we catch here is when these key providential moments happen, these, these random events happen, and someone, you have this moment, there's two responses we really can have in these moments. The one response we see is staying safe, kind of staying with what you know. It under, you understand it. I think there's a, an old um, statistic that talks, I don't know exactly what the number is, but it's like 80% like of people end up being buried about 20 miles from where they're born. Have you guys heard that before? Something like that? Most people stay with what they know. Even if a job, if they don't like it, you're like, well, it's, it's a good job, and you stay with what you know. We stay safe a lot. We try and stay safe. But faith, faith works a little differently. Faith is constantly pushing us to, to step out and push in a little further, to do something a little beyond your norm. Not too much, but enough to say, I need to move forward in a faith step. Over and over throughout the Bible, you see these faith steps. And for some reason, we think that's not for us today. Like, that's not the same exact scenarios we're living in. There's this constant push, like, how are you going to respond when there's a faith step you need to take? Ruth takes a faith step. She doesn't know what's going to happen. It doesn't sound like it's going to be good. But she knows enough to see in Ruth this God, 
that she needs to take a faith step forward. So in chapter 2, they're there. A guy by the name of Boaz comes along. Boaz is the hero of the story. His name literally means strength. He's a wealthy landowner, just a stud of the age, I guess. I don't know how you're going to say it. I don't know to talk what it looks like. I'm going to say he's a good-looking guy. Just throwing that out there. But back to the story. Sorry. Got way off track about Boaz in my head right there. So Boaz has a lot of, uh, and what you need to know right here is kind of the welfare system of the land. It's called the law of gleaning. And the way it worked was if you have these fields and, um, where you're growing crops or whatever, when you cut down or cut the weed or whatever you're, you're collecting, whatever falls to the ground behind you, you're supposed to leave it. And then the, those that are poor can come and grab the little bits and pieces that are left so they can make dinner that night. That was their welfare system. So Naomi, being very poor, sends Ruth out to do the law of gleaning and get some food for dinner. She happens to go into Boaz's field. Boaz notices her and says, who is that? So they tell Boaz, okay, well, she's with Naomi. She's taking care of her mother-in-law. And, and Boaz says, okay, why don't you leave a little bit extra, let a little extra fall right in front of her so she can collect more for her family. And then Boaz literally goes up to her and says, uh, I've heard about how you're treating your mother-in-law well. I've heard about this journey that you've come back. And I just, you know, just want to encourage you and, and say, we've noticed and you're awesome. <laughs> this is all Hopper interpretation of the verse that's on the screen. But you're awesome and uh, we really like you. So Ruth takes all this more than normal law of gleaning back to Naomi. And Naomi's like, wait, where did you go? What field were you in? And she says, Boaz, and something clicks, like a light bulb in Naomi's, Naomi's head. Like, wait, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. This is important. Kinsman redeemer, we see it early in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. What a kinsman redeemer is, they had this system where you never lost your land as an Israelite. So it always stayed in your family. You, even when the famine's going on and you're incredibly poor and you sell it to somebody else, you're not really selling it. We would call it a lease or a rental agreement or something. And every year of, of Jubilee, which is about every seven years, you would get your land back. So even though her husband has died, it goes to the closest relative uh, in that moment, and they keep the land. Which, by the way, what's so interesting about this, it's why we have impeccable records of Jesus' line. It wasn't just chance that we know every single this person was begots this person, and this person begots this person. No, that's just greedy people making sure we know exactly whose land belongs to who and never letting that land out of your grasp. And what we are able to do with that is because the genealogy is so tight, we can see exactly when, where Jesus Christ's line goes through. That's all connected. Pretty cool stuff. So Naomi's like, Boaz can redeem the land. And for Imelech, who is dead, can redeem the land for us. One other side note you have to know is the law of the Leverite marriage, which comes into play here. If you take the land and the, the wife whose husband's died uh, hasn't had a son so, so that the line can continue, then you also have to take the wife and, have, and continue the line. So that doesn't really matter for Naomi because she's had two sons. 
But the two sons didn't have a child, so they died without doing this. So Ruth comes into play. Whoever takes the land also has to take Ruth to continue the, the, the line so that that land stays in the family. Make sense? You're all tracking with me? All right, back to the story. So Naomi, all this is clicking, and she says, go tell Boaz. He's a kinsman redeemer. Ruth goes and tells Boaz, and Boaz goes, okay, yeah, I will do that, but there is a closer relative. It goes in order of closeness of, of relatives. And if you know anything about land and greed, if you are offered land, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. A bunch of free land with crops on it? Sure, that's ours now. That's kind of one of those things where you're like, oh, chances are the closer relative is probably going to step in and take it. So chapter 4, Boaz goes to that closer relative and says, here's the deal. Naomi's here, and it's time to redeem the land, and you are the closest relative. You can redeem it. To which the guy says, okay, I'll redeem it. That's the ex expectation we would have, right? I'll take it. And Boaz is like, but you also have to take Ruth at the same time and continue the line. To which you remember, Ruth is a Moabite woman. And what supersedes all these other laws is this law of we don't take foreign women. And, and we, this, this is too much. You can't handle also disobeying in a way. It would bring shame on you. So as we all would do, he takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz and says, I can't do it. I'm being facetious. It's, it's an old law, but that's what they actually did. You, you pulled off your shoe and you handed it to him as an act of shame on you because you didn't continue the line. So that literally happens in chapter 4. And Boaz goes, okay, you all saw that. They're at the center of the town. And Boaz says, I'm going to do it. I'll redeem the land and I will take Ruth. And it's this beautiful moment. Fireworks shoot up. It's just an awesome, cool ending of the book. And that's where the line of David comes through Ruth and Boaz. And the line, eventually, Jesus Christ himself comes out of this line as the Bible flows from this moment. It's so awesome. But we have to step back and go, why is Boaz so okay with this? You know, every other Jewish man would have been like, no, no, I don't want a Moabite woman. Boaz seems to be happy to do it. Why is that? And this is what we want to catch. The answer is in Joshua chapter 2. You have to go back decades in history, all the way back to when they are first coming into the land, and they're going up to these different uh, battles. In Joshua chapter 2, it's Jericho. And in Jericho, the war heroes get together, these war generals get together, and they go, all right, been talking to God, here's the game plan. We're going to walk around the city once on the first day, and then seven more days we're going to walk around this city. Then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around it seven times, and then we're going to get the band out of the back. We're going to bring them up here, and they're going to start playing horns and harps. And, like, I just I want to be there for that, like, all the war generals going, Okay, okay, this sounds different, but okay. Like, what's going on here? But here's, here's the really funny part. They sent in two spies ahead of that plan. Like, what are the spies for? And they're terrible spies. Like, this is the worst spies. They go in, and immediately they're running for their life. 
They find a prostitute's home named Rahab. Doesn't work out well. The whole town's out in front of her door going, send out the spies. I mean, they're terrible. These aren't James Bond going into Jericho. They're hiding and running for their life. Rahab gets them out. And they go back. I don't know if they share anything. I don't know what that's all about because it's not really going along with the game plan of the battle. But as it continues, the walls crumble. It all works. They go in. They annihilate everybody except Rahab because she saved these spies. In chapter 6, you see them say literally that Rahab and her family were protected and blessed because of what she did for these two spies. And they're allowed to continue with Israel all the way to like forever. They're able to own land, be part of the whole genealogy thing. Like they, because of that moment, they're protected as one as everybody else. And it's an amazing moment because that's in Moab. Rahab is a Moabite woman. And who do you think is the child of Rahab? Boaz. Like, think about that for a moment. Decades in advance, God is preparing this moment that makes little sense when you hear the story. And yet, as it goes on, there's a man by the name of Boaz who's just one of, of everyone and totally wealthy and part of the community. And all of it sets up this perfect moment for Ruth. And Ruth doesn't know any of this, and she comes along just being faithful in the moment. That's the key to faith. Are you faithful in the moment? Whatever God has put before you, will you be faithful in that? If you will, then it seems like these happenstance, accidental things come together, and all of a sudden, Ruth just happens to be in this field. And it just happens to be the one guy in the entire place that would be okay to marry her. And it happens to be a relative of Emelech. That just all worked out so perfectly. And we have the audacity to think that God isn't doing that constantly in our lives today. That when these providential moments, these seemingly accidental moments are happening, that God didn't for decades before prepare all of this to happen. And the key will be, in that moment, will we push into it or stay safe? He's doing it constantly. Will you take this step of faith? I have prepared it. I have been working behind the scenes. You know nothing about what's been going on, but I'm right here, right now, in this moment, and you have an opportunity. Will you push in? It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, you guys seem ecstatic over it. <laughs> when I think about my own journey, uh, I have been overwhelmed what God has done but I think about, I put myself in the right scenario at the right time. With Rob Sinner, the reason that we were friends is I went to this Christian club on my campus. And it was not the coolest club on campus at all. It was, I barely went. I was like, eh, it's okay. But I would go. And that's where I met this person who absolutely guided my faith because of this accident. And the see you at the pole moment, when I'm sitting at this, you know, you have to get up at like 6 a.m. to get to the school, and it's once a year, and you're like, I don't know if I want to do this. But I did it. And when I was there in that moment is when that, that 
chance encounter happened with Randy, who pushed me to be a leader. And I forced myself to go to church. I wasn't the greatest of churchgoers, but I was there. And because I was there, that moment happened with this Pastor Scott who said, you should be in ministry. And I go, okay. So I'm setting myself up for these moments. When I think about this scenario we're in right here, uh, years ago, I, I spoke at, um, actually yesterday, I spoke at Friends Community Church, which is Brea Friends. And the pastor there is Rick Darden. But years ago, Rick Darden and I met, and we've just been like exchanging leadership concepts, and we would email back and forth. I didn't really know him that well, but he asked some questions, and so I was emailing back. And it was because of this just being faithful with that moment, he was the one that told Pastor Larry about me. Pastor Larry called, and my wife and I said, okay, and we pushed into this, that moment of change to come here. And then being here, Pastor Larry had this vision of, let's launch a church in the Central Valley. Wasn't supposed to be us, but after a while, he said, I think it should be you. And we're like, no, I don't think it should be, but okay. And so we pushed into it. And then that led to now being able to help the whole denomination launch new churches and pushing into that. When Pastor Matthew from Friends Church called and asked us to do that, we're like, okay. And each time, it's just these little steps of faith at the right moment at the right time because we were being faithful in the moment. Are we being faithful with where we are right now? Are we serving? Are we giving? Are we being a part of the community that we're in right now? Now, this principle, you guys should probably see it all throughout the Bible, but you don't have to even look at the Bible. I mean, think of our heroes of today, like our hero of Luke Skywalker. He needed Obi-Wan Kenobi before he could save the universe, right? He pushed into that relationship, and because he was willing to do that, that's when he was able to take those steps forward with the Force, Rocky, you know, he's got his buddy there helping him kind of get back to the top again. Harry Potter, all you Harry Potter fans, he couldn't do it without Dumbledore. He needed Dumbledore, that relationship, that accidental relationship that helps him be so awesome. Or Katniss. We all love Katniss, right? Well, without Hamish, she would never have got to that point where she could take on President Snow. That wasn't even in her mind, right? But because of Hamish and this relationship, She's able to lead and push and go to that moment to fight off President Snow. Are you all following these stories? <laughs> Frodo Baggins, all right? You know, this little guy, if he didn't have Gandalf, he doesn't save the seven kingdoms. We get it. It's story after story. It's, it's movie after movie. The Bible, over and over, we see this with Moses. You know, Moses is guiding Joshua. Mordecai is guiding Esther. Elijah is guiding Elisha. Over and over and over, God shows us that there's these providential relationships that you have to push into. But when you do, if you're faithful in that moment, he, he reveals more and more and more. It's awesome stuff. Are you setting yourself up for this kind of success? In your notes, I give you some just things to think through. What groups are you in? Uh, you got to put yourself in those moments. Be faithful in those moments. The life group or a serve group. If you are an usher, all the ushers are getting together and they're praying together. If you are in, uh, helping the youth group, the youth group gets together and prays together. You're, you're setting yourself up 
for success for these providential relationships when you put yourself in the right scenarios. My son and I, we have been having discussions about this very issue. Uh, I want to strangle him at times, but it's discussions of if you are going to continue to choose a bad path, if you continue to put yourself in bad scenarios, it doesn't get better as you follow that path. If you're good, I'm going to be your best friend in the whole world. Like, we're going to go to Knott's Berry Farm and Disneyland. We're going to hang out. We're going to do good stuff. Good things happen. I will, I will give you all the blessings in the world. Nobody wants your success more than me. That's not really connecting. This over here is what's connecting. I continue to do worse and worse. So daddy takes the Xbox and the iPad and the clothes and the food, and now you're sitting there. No, maybe not that far. It's close. It's real close. But I'm like, if you continue down this path, bad things will be happening. So shift, change, put yourself in scenarios for success. There's that old sort of saying about luck. People are like, that guy's so lucky. But the truth is, luck is 90% preparation and then 10% of what actually happens. Are you setting yourself up for success? Are you in those groups to where, yeah, you show up to church, you don't always want to do it. Sometimes it feels a bit early or you've got other things going on, but you do it anyway because it may not happen every time, but there's going to be that moment when that providential relationship says the right words at the right moment. It could be two minutes in a service, but it all clicks. That's setting yourself up for success. So what groups are you in? What groups are your students in? Think about those of you that have kids always be thinking about, am I putting them in successful scenarios? Are you pushing them a little bit? You need to do this. Push them into being at youth group or FCA or their Christian club or at least their own Bible study with their friends. Something where you're like, yeah, they don't want to do it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pushing them into there because I want them to have that moment. And it will click at some point. And you guys are blessed. You have an incredible youth pastor with Matt. So push them to do those things. And single, same thing. Put yourself in a scenario, in, in the right groups where these moments can happen. And then think about where you hang out. Hang out with the right people. Uh, this works both ways. You know, it's all those verses, the Proverbs 13 verses of, if you are around bad company, if you, they are going to corrupt you. If you continue to be in the wrong places, hang out with the wrong people. I've seen many of marriages destroyed. I've seen people become alcoholics because of the friends they hang out with, start habits that they shouldn't have started, and just continue down these spiral effects. It matters. So who are you hanging out with? How are you hanging out in places that are actually going to be successful for you? Your friends will determine the direction and quality of your life. It matters. It matters what you do. That is one of the points in your, in your notes. Your friends will determine the direction and quality of your life. And those last couple things there, set yourself up for success by being in the right places. And this final one, this fifth one, I want, I want you to really catch this last one. For some of you, you already know all this. You, you already know, you're like, you get it. So be the providential relationship with others. 
the way you serve, and the way you love. When you're here, look around and say, how can I say something that matters to someone? How can I invite them into a serve group here? Or how can I invite them over for dinner or hang out and, and be that providential relationship for someone else? It mattered for me. Do that same thing for others. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to shift here because for some of you, um, the most important providential relationship that you need in your life is Jesus Christ himself. And a, a room this size, there may be someone here that needs this, where if you haven't taken that first step, the most important moment will be accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life. Now, it's a relationship, and there's many steps along the way, and all those steps matter. But the first step is just saying yes. I want this providential relationship in my life. I want to stop and take a moment and say, I believe. I don't have all the answers, but I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and I accept the forgiveness of my sins, and I accept this Christ in my life. And if you're here today, you need to take that first step. I want to I help you take it. Everyone bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Uh, Romans 3.23 talks about when you acknowledge me before man, I'm going to acknowledge you before my God in heaven. So I want to give you an opportunity to acknowledge before man, myself looking and praying for you. Will you put your hand up and say, that's me. I need to take this first step of making Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of my life. And just raise your hand and say, that's me. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? You need to take that first step. Acknowledge him as Lord and Savior of your life. Amen. Secondly, if you're in this room, I want to give you an opportunity to respond as well. If there is a change that needs to happen in your life, and you need to shift some of the places that you are, and you need to set yourself up for success in greater ways, I'd like to pray for you as well. Will you lift your hand and say, that's me. I need to shift some of the places that I'm hanging out, shift some of the groups that I'm in, put myself in successful places where providential relationships can happen. Will you just raise your hand? Amen. 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 Can we take a moment and give a hand to all those people that made decisions today? We want to... We need to celebrate that we have a place in which things like this can happen and these kind of moments can happen. I asked if I could do the offering time today because I believe it's connected. So as the ushers are preparing and the band's coming back, uh, here's why I think it's connected. First and foremost, when you are giving that first tenth to God that he talks about through giving, it's an act of worship, but it's also an act of faith in which you're saying, God... I have to trust you in all areas of my life, and sometimes uh, money can be a challenging one. But when you begin to trust him in this area, you're saying something like uh, 90% of myself and God, 10% of God is going to be so much more valuable than me continuing to try and do it 100% by myself in this world. And so this first moment is just a faith saying, God, I trust you. I trust what you're doing. I trust that you're decades in advance working to my future. And so I take a moment to just show faith in this way. 
But the second way, and why I think it's connected, is when you're involved in a local church, a church like this one, you are literally making a place in which providential relationships can happen. You're helping with the light bill and all the different you know, upkeep that it happens to make a place in which people come in here and make decisions every week because something clicks. When you're giving at a local church, you're a part of that. And you're also a part of what's happening outside this place where people are going and having these providential relationship moments, whether it's Long Beach or Juarez or locally here. That's what's happening every week in this moment. And I think it's an exciting moment of worship saying, God, use this to have many more of these moments happen for people all around the world. Amen? Let me pray for it. God, we just give you this time of giving. It's yours. You multiply what is given. You take it and do your will. Your will be done. New churches being launched. New relationships with you being formed. God, I pray for many more moments where people come in and something clicks because of the faithfulness of this group in their giving. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.